This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 384 of the Dressage Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network, brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products, Total Saddle Fit, and Horseware. Well, hello, everybody. Glenn the Geek here, and you're listening to the Dressage Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network. Reese and Philip are off this week. Reese is over in Europe playing around, and Philip had some other obligations as well. So we thought we would uh, provide for you something very special. Yeah, on Wednesday on the Horses in the Morning Show, we had the second annual Disney episode where we chatted with lots of amazing members of the dedicated team that care for the animals at Animal Kingdom Park and who also also help in the Disney outreach programs around the world. They shared some amazing stories of saving all different kinds of animals around the world with their community outreach programs. We're going to talk you're going to hear a little bit about gorillas and elephants and bees, birds, all kinds of things, and I think you're going to enjoy this uh, we're all horse lovers, which means we're all animal lovers, and we've gotten such a good reaction to this episode, I wanted to share it with the dressage audience as well. So we're going to get to that in just a minute, but we have a new segment starting here on the dressage show and a couple of the other shows, and that's the Horsewear Winter Grooming Tip. We're going to be running those over the next eight weeks, and I think you're going to find them interesting. We have some top grooms in the country that are providing you the tips, so enjoy the Horsewear Grooming Tip, and then we're on with the second annual Disney episode. We hope you enjoy this little love from Horses in the Morning. This winter grooming tip is brought to you by Horsewear Blankets. Joining us are two of the top grooms in the country of Enter Philip Dutton's groom, Emma Ford, and Cat Hill from World Class Grooming. Well, this week's Horsewear Winter Grooming Tip, we have Emma on and we're talking about winter scratches on the legs, or uh, scratches of any time, really, on the legs, but especially in the winter. It's a problem we have in here in Florida all year long, so I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, everybody, uh, one of the things with our clinics that we do, everyone's always asking, how do we get rid of the scratches? Hopefully these tips will help you help you guys out scratches really comes down to or preventing scratches comes down to good grooming practices being making sure you're good about um, lightly currying your legs both before and after riding so their legs um, actually are one of the has the poorest circulation within their body so you actually want to get that circulation going so improving that circulation in the legs helps to prevent infection very important that you don't start overwashing your legs and letting um, by overwashing with shampoos, you actually remove the horse's natural ability to fight these infections. You end up drying out the skin and uh, removing the oils that is what they actually need to help you uh, or help themselves, basically, to maintain their skin health. Should you want to or need to shampoo, then always use a very mild shampoo. And again, you can use something as simple as ivory. And then very important to towel dry those legs. And you're actually, it's not just about drying the hair, it's about drying the skin. 
skin. For those of you down south, I would definitely recommend hand grazing your horses before you put them away in their stalls. Um, trying to put horses away with wet legs, providing that um, environment of moist and warm for bacteria to grow. For some people, I've even recommended blow-drying their leg to make sure that the hair and the skin get dry. Obviously, you need a quiet horse for this. And uh, <laughs> My hackney pony would be in the state of Georgia after I tried that. <laughs> <laughs> it is not for everybody. It is not for everybody. And then a lot of people are fun, you know, enjoy wrapping their horses a lot. If you do need, for, for some reason, wrap slightly damp, damp legs, you could apply talcum powder to help with the moisture control. Always make sure you use clean boots and clean polos. By the time you either have mud or dirt rubbing into their skin and make the small micro abrasions, um, that's what you're trying to avoid. So of any surface abrasion that could allow for the bacteria to grow is what we're always trying to avoid. And then for those of you that you know have to work outside, you don't have the luxury of an indoor and it's a bit muddy and it's a bit wet, if your horse is prone to scratches, then using some sort of zinc oxide paste or desiccin is a good way of preventing, it forms a good barrier um, against those microorganisms. Very good. Where can people find out more about what you do? We are available on worldclassgrooming.com and also Facebook, um, Instagram, and we have uh, a top-selling book any horse or equestrian establishment world-class grooming the competition horse great christmas gift for the loved ones in your life no matter whether they have a backyard horse or their competitor worldclassgrooming.com is where you can find it this tip was brought to you by horseware have you ever wanted to own your own rambo well here's your chance from october 3rd to november 23rd Receive $50 off any Rambo turnout blanket, including the Rambo Duo, the Optimo, the Original, the Supreme, and all the others in the Rambo turnout line. All you have to do is trade in your old turnout from any brand for a horse in need. Simply visit horseware.com trade for more information and fill out the form for the voucher you will need to get your $50 off. The complete list of retailers is at horseware.com trade as well. Open to U.S. and Canadian residents only. Go to horseware.com trade today and replace that blanket with all the holes for one of the best blankets on the market. The Rambo Turnout Line. This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. Good Wednesday morning, everybody. I am Glenn Geek from Ocala, Florida. And I'm Jamie Jennings in Phoenix, Arizona. And you're listening to our special Disney World episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for October 5th, episode 1535. Good morning, Horse World. First came the Magic Kingdom, then Epcot, then Disney MGM Studios. And now... Ah, 
Introducing the most adventurous Walt Disney World theme park ever. Disney's Animal Kingdom. The imagination of Disney gone wild. Well, welcome to Animal Kingdom, everybody. This is the second annual Disney World episode. If you missed last year's episode, it was all about the horses at Disney World. You can go to horsesinthemorning.com and search Disney World. It'll bring it up. Today, we will be speaking with many people who help and care for the animals at Animal Kingdom Park and who help their animal outreach programs around the world. Yeah, the Disney Conservation Fund has awarded more than $40 million in annual grants since it began in 1995. Now, the program helped conserve more than, check this out, they've conserved 400 species around the world and supported the protection of more than 3,600 square miles of habitat. And that is the equivalent, check this out, Glenn. Because you walk around this park. That's 60 Disney World resorts about. Yeah, that's way too tiring. <laughs> I can't even walk through one Disney World in a day. So they've also funded education programs that have directly engaged more than 3 million people in conservation efforts. The Disney Conservation Fund, the DCF, also just kicked off a new initiative to help protect the planet by collaborating with leading nonprofit organizations that are going to help threaten wildlife and inspire a lifelong love for nature and young people. The new initiative called Reverse the Decline, Increase the Time is aimed at reversing the decline of 10 threatened species through scientific research, community collaboration, and increasing the time the kids spend in nature. We have a bunch of guests coming up today from Disney, and we're so excited about all of them. No, <laughs> I didn't get to hear that music some more oh. today. <laughs> It'll be stuck in your head for all day long. So, I'll keep going. Go ahead. <laughs> We have our, a very special guest to start today, somebody who's a friend of the Horse Radio Network. We met her last year. We spent two days with her last year. Her name is Robin Walker. She's zoological manager at Disney's Tricircle D Ranch. And good morning, Robin. Hakuna Good Matata. Good morning, Horse World. Hakuna Matata. <laughs> Hakuna Matata. <laughs> Thank you, Robin, for all Bye. the help you have put in. Uh, you helped us get one of the animators, and that was so fascinating. We, we loved talking to them. And now you've kind of got this ball rolling and helped us get in touch with the, the people over at Animal Kingdom because horse people are lovers of all animals. And we're going to find out about more of those today. But, you know, the horses are still at Tri-Circle D Ranch and gearing up for a busy holiday season. Yeah, we definitely are. You know, we um, are so excited here when the holidays come around. Well, every day is a holiday for us. But, you know, we um, have a lot going on, you know, rolling into the fall and, of course, into the Christmas season. You know, right now we've got Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween parties going on in the Magic Kingdom. And who do you think makes his appearance every year at that party? Who do you think it is? The Headless Horseman. The Headless Horse. I got it. I right, the Headless see, Horseman. I'm, I'm in a wrong path. I was going to say Mickey. <laughs> well, he does, well, too. of course, Mickey. Mickey and Minnie and all of his friends and, are there. But the Headless Horseman comes every year, and the Headless Horseman's horse stays here at the Tricircle D Ranch. So, um, so you know, we spend the fall getting ready for that. And then, of course, the Christmas season. So we're already in preparations for that, you know, rehearsals for the, um, the Christmas shows and the parades. And then here at the ranch, we also have our sleigh rides um, at uh, Fort Wilderness, which we're really excited about. 
So now, now we've got a lot to keep us busy. It is Florida, so are the sleigh rides actually on snow? Does Mickey make snow? How does that work? Well, Mickey does make snow, and um, but you know we don't have enough uh, enough snow necessarily. But they're on wheels. But you know it's still the magic of of Disney World. You know it uh, feels. It feels like winter when you're here. You know, we have the jingle bells on the horses. Everybody here at Fort Wilderness and the campground, they decorate their campsites. So it's kind of like an old-fashioned Christmas. You know, there's there's hot chocolate being served by the local restaurant here. And um, it's just a really fun time. Question for you. When does the holiday stuff kick off? Somebody told me it was right after Halloween was over. Is it closer to Christmas? How does that work? Well, pretty much um, it starts, you know, we go through Halloween and then um, the sleigh rides pretty much pick up right at the end of November, right after Thanksgiving. So, um, so the last weekend in November into December, the whole month of December. Okay, because um, Glenn, I haven't even told you this, but I'm going to need some time off because I'm actually going to go to Disney World the 13th and 14th of November. Oh, you'll be so, in, you'll be in hol- full holiday swing. You won't have okay. to worry about that. And Good. and that means we need time off too because we're coming down to join you. So. Oh, geez, <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> I'm going to be gone. Well, it's my favorite time at Disney. And it's one of the reasons we moved to Florida is so we could go to Disney at Christmas time. I mean, it's just, it is magical. And it doesn't matter what the temperature is. It, Robin was right about that. It's just a magical place to be all the time, but especially at Christmas. Uh, Robin, yeah, it is. And they'll start decorating right after Halloween. Yeah, you'll be so. good. You'll be in full Christmas you'll, mode. You're, you'll be, uh, you'll we be, will. You'll yeah. be good. <laughs> You've got to go do the trail ride, though, and visit Robin. Over at Tricycle D. Yeah. Yeah. She'll set you up over there. Yeah, you know, we will we will. We'll hook you up and you can get out on that trail ride. You know, we have a trail ride that leaves five times a day. And, you know, we have people here that wouldn't think to ride anywhere else. And they come here and they have their first trail ride and introduction to horses right here. You know, we definitely feel like we're an ambassador for the horse world. And then we have the pony rides for the little cowboys and cowgirls who aren't quite old enough to go on the trail ride because they have to be nine in order to do that. Well, and I rode a Disney horse and I did not die. So there you you go. Did did they put you on the pony rides? They did. I was on the pony rides. That's right. Yeah. They didn't trust me on a real horse. So (laughs) thank you, you, Robin. For those guests who won't get on the the trail rides, though, they can do the carriage rides as well. Which which we did too. And that was a lot of fun. Of course, I'm a carriage driver, so I'm partial to that. But it it was fun. Yeah. Robin, thank you so much. Where can people find out about doing the carriage and the trail rides at Disney? Where do they go? Well, they can they can call WDW Play in order to make reservations. They can get on the Walt Disney World um, website, and there's um, total information on on that. And of course, the, we have blogs and Facebook pages as well. Very good. So, thank all you, sorts Robin. Of places that they can find out. And thank you, and th- I'm very excited that you're going to talk to my friends over at Animal Kingdom. Well, and thanks for all your help again. We really do appreciate. It. I also want to thanks, thank Robin. Stephanie Shook, who is uh, who is in communications over there, who helped put all this together. She worked hard on this, and we really appreciate her as well. Take care, Robin. So, Hakuna Matata. see you later. <laughs> 
I have the Kunigata. feeling we're going to be hearing that a lot today from Jamie. What does Hakuna Matata mean? I, I don't know. We'll find means out. means no worries for the rest of your days. Oh, my God. It's something. You've only watched that movie awesome. with your child about 50 times, I'm guessing. Well, um, no, we watched The Lion Guard, which is the cartoon spinoff that goes on uh, on the Disney Channel. Ah, gotcha. Well, we have our next guest. We have lined up today. We're going to go right into Dr. Dr. Deidre Fontenot, which I think is how you say it. Over 15 years, along with other members of Disney's animal care team, they've been lending a helping hand on the beautiful Pacific Islands of the Marineras to save multiple species of birds, including the Guam rail. Marinera Islands. Yeah, I did. Mariana. Mariana. Did I say marinara? I said that the other day, too. <laughs> yeah, I have spaghetti on the brain. <laughs> Good morning. How are you? Hafadai, everyone. My name is Dr. Deidre, and I just said hello and good morning in Chamorro, which is the local language and culture of the people of the Marianas. I, not the marineras, which apparently is what I have on the brain. <laughs> not the marineras. <laughs> Maybe that's an island in Italy. It could be. <laughs> That's funny. So, how, what did you how, say? Say it for us again. It is Hafa Adai, H A F A A D A I, which is good morning, similar to Aloha uh, for the Micronesian people wow, of the Marianas. Cool. cool. And of course, Hapa if anybody that's not sure where that is probably knows where Guam is because that, that would be the one that everybody over here recognizes. So, tell us, we're going to talk today about the birds in, in, those, in that island chain and especially in, in Guam. So, talk to us a little bit about that and what's happening over there. Well, Disney has been uh, involved in conservation work over there uh, since 2001. So we have a long history, uh, as uh, Walt Disney has for uh, has always been committed to conservation. And uh, there was an accidental introduction of a snake. Uh, I don't, really don't like snor- stories where snakes are the bad guy, but unfortunately, this is one of those. You were uh, so Disney. It was believed snakes are always the bad guys. That's true in Disney movies. No. That's true. <laughs> No, we've got a lot of good guys that are snakes around here at Animal Kingdom. Oh, good. Anyway, so this is a story uh, where the snake got introduced onto the island. It was believed during a lot of the air traffic of World War II that the snake made it onto the island. And what happened is we had an apex predator that was introduced onto an island that doesn't have apex predators. And what happened is this predator basically ate all of the birds, literally. Uh, There were five to seven species that were declared extinct uh, before they were able to rescue uh, two species, uh, both of which we uh, have at Animal Kingdom. One is the Guam Kingfisher, and the other is the Marianas Fruit Dove. And then we also work with a small uh, non-flighted bird uh, called the Guam Rail. The tomorrow name is the Coco. And uh, we help with the reintroduction program uh, back to get those birds back on Guam. Uh, These are species that are unique only to those islands. And so it's important for us to be engaged, but it's also important for the people of the Marianas to know how important, how unique their birds are and uh, how they have that connection to their culture. And so it's just been a real privilege to be a part of that program. So what are you doing on the island, on the islands, especially Guam, to alleviate the snake issue? Or, you know, what are you doing to try and preserve the birds? So Because I assume the snakes are still eating the eggs, uh, which is the problem. 
They absolutely are. Um, it is quite a multifactorial approach. So we have a lot of organizations that we work with. Uh, the USDA manages a lot of the brown tree snake control. They have snake sniffing dogs, believe it or not, that work the really? airport and other areas looking for those snakes to make sure that the snakes don't make it to other islands. Uh, and then they have these unique strategies where they're trying to eliminate uh, the snakes using any, everything from uh, Tylenol-laced uh, prey items uh, that they're launching into parachutes. It's an unbelievable initiative that they're doing to try to uh, tr to get to eliminate and control these snakes. Our role is to provide veterinary and husbandry expertise uh, to the team on the island, which is the Department of Aquatic and Wildlife Resources, that not only breed the birds in a snake-proof facility, but also facilitate releases to some of the neighboring islands uh, where uh, they do not have brown tree snakes. So we facilitate that process. We're also translocating birds, which means to move from one island to the other, uh, from an island where we're afraid the brown tree snake is going to make it next. And so what we're doing is we're trapping birds on that high-risk island and moving them to uninhabited islands to build insurance populations because we don't want what happened on Guam to happen on the other islands. So we're trying to protect the birds that still exist on the other islands. Now, how do you convince them to stay or is the distance too far? Are you building a big wall? Seeing we've been talking about walls lately. How are you convincing of the stay on the island? And that is a great question. Now, these islands are for, these birds are forest birds. So they tend to not do that. I'm going to swim across, uh, swim, swim, yeah, fly across the ocean behavior. Uh, okay. So they tend to stay within their forest habitats that we release them onto. Got it. Okay. And the islands are pretty far apart from each other. Uh, generally, some of them as far as 20 to 25 miles, but some of the island chain are about two to three miles apart. Okay. I have a question. When you think of Disney World and, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the conservation is something different, but like, how do you, how does Disney World get involved with the Mariana Islands? I, I mean, that just seems like a world away from Orlando. That is a great question. Uh, for uh, for us, uh, we actually, through the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, we have different population management programs called Species Survival Plans. And Disney's role uh, began with the Guam Kingfisher, which has a species survival plan. Uh, and uh, we began our work by breeding those birds in captivity to, uh, to in a managed care situation to uh, eventually contribute to the reintroduction program. Then in working with the team that are part of the reintroduction program, we saw a veterinary support need uh, and offered our services. And then it really just grew from there. So what started as a veterinary initiative expanded to we teach them about incubating uh, eggs, how to uh, manage birds with uh, training, uh, with uh, enriching them with diet items, nutritional support. Uh, and then it expanded from there. We know that conservation and the science of conservation is great to be a part of, but if you're not educating the community, that's a critical piece as well. So then we expanded to doing community outreach. Uh, each time that we're traveling to Guam, 
We do a community event where we reach out to the children uh, so that they can look for science and opportunities in conservation with our hope that we can capacity build on the islands so that the people are invested and have that cultural connection and realize how important their forests are, how important watershed is, uh, and protecting your coral reefs and what you're doing on your island can influence your the forest and how important how important birds are to seed dispersal and uh, all of the different roles that kids can play because we know that it's the kids who are going to go to their parents and teach them about recycling, about how to build backyard habitats, and those are really the the critical piece that we want to reach when we're there on the islands. Oh my gosh! See, this is ju- you, you guys have just got a total handle on it. I mean, you get those kids involved, and you'll change lives, and and you'll improve everything forever, as you guys very well know. But that's really inspiring. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a multifactorial approach. And I think that's what Disney does so well, uh, is we can provide expertise, but we also want to support the local people in our process. So now, so at, at Animal Kingdom, you do have some of these birds, and I know I've seen them. Um, so, but there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes at Animal Kingdom, too, with animals that are there, but we don't see. Is that, is that right? Where, where you're helping do the preservation and breeding and things like that? Absolutely. And the Guam Kingfisher is a great example of that. There's only about 100 in captivity. uh, And uh, so we keep them in a controlled breeding environment. They're very territorial. They require these cavity nestings. So they need some very, very specialized care. And so we're able to do that at our avian research and breeding facility. And what's that like? That must be a cool place. Oh, it is. It is an absolutely, I call it my serenity now space where I like to go. The birds are <laughs> chirping. It's beautiful, uh, lush areas. It's a very comfortable place for the birds to be. So very, very cool. And, and uh, you know, we're hoping uh, that, uh, you know, that is uh, some con- contribution and telling the story about those birds in our off-exhibit spaces are a great part of uh, sharing uh, a lot of the great things that Disney does. All right. Very cool. Well, we're, we're so excited that you guys are doing the work that you're doing and, uh, it is important no matter where it is around the world. And it's, I think one of the fun things we wanted to show today is how much of this work that Disney does do that really gets very little recognition. And it, absolutely. Yeah. And I'd love to introduce you guys to Dr. Ann who sure. has just come in. Okay. Um, cool. So. I, I will say Hafadai again, which similar to Hafadai. Aloha can mean goodbye. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed talking with you guys. And thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks Hafadai. a bunch. Hafadai. We're learning all kinds of new words today. Why don't you introduce Dr. Ann while she's getting all set up? All right. We have, well, we have Dr. Ann Savage on. And Dr. Ann Savage, uh, Dr. Savage, established an on-site conservation program that combines field research, education initiatives, and community programs in Colombia. So now we're just testing your, your ge- geography knowledge today, Glenn, uh, in Colombia to raise public awareness on the plight of the cotton-topped tamarind. Now, if you don't know what a cotton-topped tamarind is, Google it because it's the cutest thing ever. And that's kind of one of the problems, I do believe, is they're just too stinking cute. So, Dr. Savage, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I know you're just kind of uh, the animal guru down there. And are you, are you living in Florida or are you a Columbia 
do you go back and forth? What what is what's the deal? Well, I live in Florida, but I do spend a lot of time in the country of Colombia. I call it my second home. Okay, gotcha. So tell us uh, a little bit about what you do. So I work with one of the cutest monkeys in the world, the cotton-top tamarind. It's a small one-pound monkey with this shock of white hair. In fact, it looks like it's got this sort of punk hairdo. Um, and, you know, because of its tiny nature, it's found uh, in the tropical forests of Colombia. And when you hear about issues with tropical forests, you know that there are lots of problems with habitat being destroyed. But as you mentioned, cotton-tops are incredibly cute. So there is this need for people to want them as pets. And so we've been working really, really hard on a couple of different approaches to help local communities understand why it's so important to preserve this little monkey and preserve the habitat that it has. And we do that through some really fun initiatives. You know, we work very closely with our communities in a number of ways. We've got a great program that teaches kids about cotton top tamarinds because when I first started working with cotton tops, um, we surveyed people in the community and nobody knew that cotton top tamarinds were found only in the country of Colombia and that they were an endangered species. They really thought really? they were as common as squirrels and that we had them here in the United States. So huh. if we want people to conserve something, we really need to get them to understand why it's so important. Let them know that it's special and it's their culture and their heritage. Exactly. And, you know, we started this whole campaign that really positions the cotton top as something very special because it's only found in Colombia and it's 100% Colombian just like they are. And that's one of the taglines that we use that's really resonated with the the people in Colombia. Why are they only found there? Well, it's it's interesting. It has a lot to do with the geography. You know, there's a mountain range and oceans that prevent them from spreading into other countries. Uh, so, um, you know, there are lots of species that are like that. They're found in just particular areas of the the world because of different restrictions in habitats. So the the interesting thing about cotton tops is that you know, through our education programs, we've really gotten people to care about them. So we've brought books to communities where kids get to learn about cotton tops. When you go to rural communities in Colombia, kids don't have books when they go to school. The kids, uh, the teachers write on the chalkboard and the children will copy it into a little notebook. What we've done is created a book that allows kids to learn about cotton tops as well as what they can do to help. And this has been something that's been really life-changing in these communities because kids now have a book that they not only learn from, but they take it home and they read to their brothers and sisters and other family members, and now everyone is learning about cotton tops. And it's been this huge impact in really getting the word out there. In addition to that, we've got some other programs where we take some of the brightest and most dedicated kids that are interested in conservation and teach them how to be community leaders. And it's been really fun because these kids get to work on projects uh, where they're either replanting uh, forest stands near their areas or they're developing recycling programs, all in the name of wanting to protect cotton tops. And when you go into these communities, we've been able to blend a lot of music and art into this work as well. So you'll go into communities and see um, sides of buildings painted with cotton top tamarinds and messages about why we want to protect them. And kids are now creating songs about cotton tops and dancing about cotton tops. In fact, they've even created a holiday in Colombia called the Day of the Cotton Top, which is August 15th, where all communities come together and celebrate their commitment. Oh, that's but cool. our newest program that's been really, really fun um, is, you know, we're trying to get people to understand why cotton tops should be left in the forest and not 
uh, kept as pets. And so when you think about what really makes a good pet, it's really domestic animals. But kids in Colombia, um, really, they don't have a great relationship with domestic animals. You know, they most people have dogs in their communities because it alerts them when strangers come to their property. And so, and they really don't think dogs are very bright. So what we've done is taken um, the expertise that we have here at Disney's Animal Kingdom with some of our amazing animal keepers, and we've started a program where we teach kids how to train their dogs to do simple behaviors. And this has been really remarkable because all of a sudden, these kids now have pets that are really interested in, in bonding with them. And they're teaching their dogs to sit, to roll over. And, and it's been remarkable because now kids want to have a dog as a pet instead of a monkey. Mm. Oh, so that's how you tie yeah. it in. I was like, what Got does it. this have to do with the cotton tops? But that's <laughs> genius. I mean, you've kind yeah. of like, I mean, this is like mind control. It's awesome. You've gone, <laughs> hey, here we go. These are um, these are very native for you and they're very special and you shouldn't touch them. But here, let me give you a puppy. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. And now, you know, when the great thing about it is when you tell people, hey, please don't do this, and you give them something else in return, they're like, absolutely, I get why I need to save cotton tops. And now, guess what? I'm going to have this great relationship with my dog and even have a better life for my dog because now the dogs are getting well cared for. And you should see these kids walking around with their dogs now. It's so cute. And they want to oh do dog gosh. shows and, you know, all of this really fun stuff. How long has this been going on? I'm sorry, just Um, how long has this program been going on? Because I know that there's fewer than 7,000 cotton tops left in the wild. So, I mean, is this a newer initiative? No, it's actually been going on for quite some time. It actually started when I was a graduate student many years ago, um, but it's really, uh, really blossomed in probably like the last 10 years. And I'm really happy to say that we've done some census work. And, you know, while there was uh, 7,000 was our original estimate about seven years ago, we went back and did another survey to see how many cotton tops were left. And they're still at 7,000. So when you think about um, all the things that are happening in today's world, the fact that the population is holding stable is a huge victory for cotton top tamarins. Absolutely. What are they difficult to breed? Is there, are there predators that take them? What else are some of the threats that they face? And then how can people help? Well, one of the other great programs that we have is a a program to help a lot of local communities who really don't have a way to um, have a stable source of income. You know, there's very few jobs in rural communities in Colombia. And so a lot of these folks then end up going into the forest to cut down trees to sell or they're hunting animals to eat. So what we've done is created a program for local artisans where we've trained them how to crochet, not using cotton, but plastic bags. And so we have a big recycling program where we collect plastic bags before they go into the waste stream. And our artisans make these beautiful tote bags that are called eco-mochilas. And you can buy these eco-mochilas at Disney's Animal Kingdom or online at preactott.com. And it's a great way to help support these local communities. And this has really been able to revolutionize how we've been able to really engage communities because by creating jobs and by educating folks, they really understand the need and they want to do this. You know, it's, it's when you talk to people in Colombia now, there's such pride around saying, you know what, we are helping to reverse the decline of cotton top tamarins in our country. And it's all through the efforts of the work that we do. And so they are so proud of it. And, you know, there was recently one of the Columbia made a, a new movie about 
uh, wildlife, and they featured cotton-top tamarinds as one of their species. So that wouldn't have happened probably 10 or 15 years ago. Well, and I think you guys have made it to where almost if you know somebody that is keeping a cotton-top tamarind as a pet, it's almost like you get to shame them. You know, like... exactly. This is, yeah, this is ours. This is our countries. Go ahead. Sorry. Absolutely. And when, you know, when we first started working in Colombia, there were a lot of people that had them as pets. And I'm happy to tell you now that the communities where we work, nobody has a cotton top as a pet. And they are very proud of that fact. Really? That's awesome. And they must want them as pets. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about their personalities. They must want them as pets because they're personable. Well, you know, they're incredibly cute. And when they're little, they, you know, like to be around people and they, they will cling to you. Um, they have some amazing vocalizations. They have about 40 different calls that they give. And the other thing that's really cool about cotton tops is that they generally always give birth to twins. Huh. So there's nothing more exciting than looking up in the trees and seeing those two little heads looking at you. Are, are they, um, are they the out and thing- about right away or do they hang out in a nest for a while or are they in the trees doing their thing immediately? They're in the trees with their parents. So they're, one of the things that's cool about cotton tops is that it's not just mom who takes care of the babies. It's mom, dad, brothers, and sisters all carry the babies on their backs. Hmm. And they are dependent on their parents for about the first 12 weeks of life. And then they'll start to slowly get off and explore the forest. And they learn what to eat by stealing food from their parents. And it's really neat because the parents have a food chirp that says, I have food in my hand. And when the babies hear that, they just come run and steal the food. <laughs> That's so cool. Now, Glenn, uh, if you haven't seen these, the, imagine that um, put your hands together like uh, you're cupping something with two hands, and the cotton top tamer would fit in your hand. However, when I think of like good pets, I can't imagine these are great pets because they are fast. They're bing, 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 bing. I mean, they're just everywhere all the time. They're so quick. I can't imagine one snuggling up with somebody. It can't be how they how they behave as pets. It must have to keep them pretty locked up, huh? Yeah, when they're tiny babies, then they're really cuddly and cute. But once puberty hits, it's sort of all over. And then they end <laughs> up having to put them in a cage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then it's just tough. And then that, that bull, I'm so proud of the, what you guys have done and, and getting the kids involved and making it to where it's, it's just, that's just genius, you know, make it to where like, hmm, you're hurting yourself because it's your own country and this is your pride uh, involved. And that was really, really a great way to go about it. I'm, I'm excited. And what is, what is the website people can go to, to, to check out uh, more about the cotton top tamarinds? ProyectoTT.com, or you can learn more about it at DisneyAnimals.com. And we're, Disney. we're going to put a link in our Facebook page, too, to ProyectoTT.com, because it's hard to spell. So we'll, we'll put a link to it in our Facebook page and our show notes. But Dr. Ann, she's busy down there. Uh, she also works on a project at Disney World that involves the largest swallow in North America, the Purple Martins. Yeah, and she's it, our next guest, actually. I know, she's right here. <laughs> and apparently they have bought season tickets, the uh, Purple Martins, to Disney World and stop over and enjoy the resorts and the food and apparently get a little frisky while they're there, like a lot of other people do at Disney World. And you're going to talk to us a little bit about the Purple Martins. I know. Purple Martins are one of my favorite birds. You know, they fly from one of the most remote places on Earth, a tiny little island in the Brazilian Amazon in the middle of nowhere, And they fly 3,000 miles to Walt Disney World, one of the most happiest places on earth, to raise their family. How cool is that? 
<laughs> so I thought it was funny that they do stop by Disney World. We live in Ocala, so so we we go there all the time. And of course, we're familiar with swallows as horse people. We all have barn swallows. So what mm-hmm. makes the purple martin different than the barn swallow that we try and keep out of our barn because they make a mess? Well, purple martins are a little bit different in that they are colonial nesters. So they have, um, they're completely dependent upon people to put up nest colonies for them. And years ago, Native Americans used to put up gourds around their crops because purple martins will eat insects. They're, they're aerial insectivores. So when you think about those big tasty dragonflies, those are one of the things they love to eat. So um, now Purple Martins are completely dependent upon people to put up these houses. And we have a bunch of houses at Walt Disney World. You can see them at Epcot, at Caribbean Beach Resort, at uh, Saratoga Springs, and even back here at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Are they the white, bubbly-looking things? Exactly. Okay. That's it. Now, I know exactly because it took us a long time. We would drive in, and you'd see them along along the roads there, too. And then we'd also see them out the bow, and we were going, what the heck are those? So that's what they are. Exactly. So we expect Purple Martins to start arriving around January. We typically see the first eggs appearing around uh, St. Patrick's Day in March. And then come July or so, we bid them a fond farewell as they head back to Brazil. So this is the furthest north they come then? Well, they actually will nest all the way into Canada. Oh, wow. Um, but our colony tends to be the first that arrive. The Florida colonies start first, and the Canada colonies end up arriving usually in uh, April, May, June. And they don't have to pay for parking, right? No, they no. don't. No, just checking. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Matter of fact, they get prime parking. They get their own house at Disney, Disney World. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. But it's amazing to think that this little two-ounce bird flies, makes a 6,000-mile round trip uh, every year to come to Walt Disney and World. And we need to, GPS. To Je- Jamie's husband is an airline pilot and a, and a fighter pilot. He needs GPS to find that location. They have these teeny-weeny little brains that do that. It's amazing. It is. It's so amazing. Not only do they come back to... Um, their same nesting location, but a lot of times they'll choose the exact same place where they nested the previous year. But I'm here to tell you, they don't always choose the same mate. Ah, okay. Oh, the little monsters. (laughs) They're naughty. (laughs) They are naughty at Disney World. So so what do they, I assume, do, do they eat berries? Are they eating worms? What do they eat? No, they eat primarily insects. So those big flying insects are what they really love. Okay, cool. My father-in-law, now this makes sense. He's got, um, I like to say, a a purple martin habitat. I mean, he he just has all these white birdhouse type things, but they're like condominiums almost. Like igloos, right? Igloos, yeah. No, 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 no. This is a giant birdhouse with all these different Uh, holes, and it looks like a big giant condominium, like an apartment. Yeah. And it is on a very, very, very tall stick. And he always constantly worries when they get weather in Oklahoma that it's going to, they're all going to blow over, but um, they're purple Martin houses. So purple Martins go all the way to Oklahoma. So is it not just Florida that they live in it? What, what is, are they all over the country? They are primarily in the East coast and parts of the Midwest. Oh, that makes sense then. Yeah. Okay. So how far north do they go? They can go into Canada, all the way to Canada. Oh my gosh. How, how long does a bird live? Is that a stupid question? But <laughs> I have well, no idea <laughs> the length of time that a bird lives. 
I, you know, I think it depends a lot on the different things that it faces. Uh, we've had birds return up to four years. So imagine they were hatched here at Walt Disney World and have come back, uh, made that migratory uh, flight four times. So uh, when, when they don't return, we don't really know what happens to them. They may have either chosen to nest somewhere else around Florida, or they may just not have made it back. But four years for a bird that flies that far is pretty remarkable. That's a lot of frequent flyer miles there. Well, Dr. Ann Savage, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about about the tamarins and also the purple martins. We really appreciate it. And am I correct in that you're handing the phone off again? I am indeed. I'm going to be passing it to Rachel Denault, who's here to talk to you about the wonderful work that's going on to help protect gorillas in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Cool. My gosh, we've been all over the world. Now we're going to head to the to the Republic of the Congo. So listen, uh, this one is something I'm really excited to hear about because there's just nothing kind of more magical than than the gorillas. If you've ever seen gorillas in the mist or any of the, the work that's been done for gorillas, and I'm so excited to hear that they're saving gorillas, and it's all tied to Disney World. So Rachel Denault. Uh, is the primate zoological manager for Disney's Animal Kingdom and joins us to speak about Grace, which is a program to provide the best facilities and care for rescued, is it gra- grayers, gorillas in the Democratic Republic of Congo while working alongside local communities to ensure gorilla survival in the wild. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Do you have the coolest job in the animal kingdom? <laughs> I mean, did you win a, did you win the lottery of like employees? What happened? Well, it's pretty funny. I did not um, set out to work with uh, primates even at all. And um, about 15 years ago, a little over 15 years ago, started working with gorillas and something just clicked. And I have since gone on to um, be the chair of our Gorilla Behavioral Advisory Group for North America and work with the um, Species Survival Programs for North American Gorillas. So I was very lucky uh, when Disney started getting involved with Grace. Okay, hold up. One does not just start working with gorillas, so I need a little background. Well, I actually, my background was um, with mixed species. I also, my favorite was red pandas. Loved red pandas. But what I really enjoyed was um, the behavioral aspects of our job. So watching the animals, learning about why they do things, training with the animals. Mm -hmm. And the primate team here at Disney was very well known for the program And they had an opening, so I decided even though primates were not really my favorite, their training and behavioral program was beyond compare. So I applied for the job, and I got it, and I got hooked. Okay, what is the, when we've got people listening that are in college right now, what is the major that they have to get to to work with you? What did you go to school for? I actually have a degree in um, zoology. So zoology would be one, biology, psychology, uh, in particular for primates, anthropology. Um, There's a lot of degrees out there now that you can um, use. The biggest thing, though, to get into the field that I do is um, you do a lot of volunteer work and a lot of interning. So I did what I do now for two years for free. 
Yeah, I, got, I pretty much I means that, that you that you pick up poop for like two years <laughs> for free. We yeah, know what interning exactly in the horse it world means. It means grab a pitchfork and go to the barn. That's what interning <laughs> right. in the horse it world means. <laughs> it means the same thing here. So, um, definitely, it is a career where you love what you do and you have passion for what you do. And you're not really into it for the glamour or the money. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. I've gotten a question a number of times today. We're getting que- I'm getting questions from listeners on Facebook here. And, and that was the number one question is, how do you get to work with the animals at Disney? And I think you've just answered it. I think that's, that's the answer. Tell us what grace is. And it's G-R-A-C-E. It is. And so that stands for the Gorilla Rehabilitation and Conservation Education Center. You guys have already mentioned it is in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it is the only um, orphanage for growlers gorillas in the world. So what we do is we take in um, orphaned gorillas from poachers, and um, we help provide them the most natural life possible given their situation. So um, it was, it became apparent to us around 2008 that um, poaching was a huge issue and there was a market for these orphaned gorillas. And when law enforcement was going in and trying to enforce and um, prevent this from happening, the biggest problem was there was nowhere for these orphans to go. So it uh, came to our attention and we decided to create Grace. Okay, why on earth would somebody, this might be a dumb question, but why on earth would somebody shoot an adult gorilla? What do they get out of it? Actually, it's not a dumb question. It's actually one that is um, really at this point, creating um, a drastic drop in the population size. And that's um, for something called bushmeat. They basically eat them. So what's happening is uh, these people are um, going deep into the forest. And primarily what we're finding is that they are mining. Uh, Most people don't realize that in um, DRC, they have trillions of dollars of untapped um, ore there, and there's really no infrastructure. There's no legislation. So people go deep into the woods. They start these illegal mining groups, and they have to eat, and this is where the gorillas live. So they can go, and what they will do is they will kill an entire group of gorillas, and they'll sell the meat, they'll eat the meat, and they'll sell the meat. Then the um, orphans, they are, are trading in the black market. So they are selling them um, for pets, basically, on the black market. And they're, they're getting quite a substantial amount for these infants. So it unfortunately has become more prevalent recently. How do you not just hate all people? <laughs> Well, one of the things is when you go to Grace and you see the community and the support that we are given to help save these animals and to hopefully potentially reintroduce these orphaned gorillas back into the wild, 
then you you understand because these are people who are just trying to survive and they want an alternative solution. So one of the things that's so wonderful about Grace is that we really look for opportunities not only to help the gorillas but help the community. So we look at education opportunities for the folks around there to learn why they should help these animals and ways that they can um, obtain food without going into the forest for bushmeat. So it's when you go over there and you see how committed these people are to saving these animals, it's extremely inspiring. And, you know, the story of Grace is really cool because the people came to us and said, we want to help these animals. We will give you our land if you will help us build this and do this. Because they knew they didn't have the expertise to do it, but they have the place. They have the animals. And, um, you know, when a community comes to you and asks you to help them like that, you just don't say no. Tell us about Gorilla Biscuits. I found that fact. I read an oh, article gorilla about that. Biscuits. Yeah, I thought it was fun. So this is one of my favorite stories, and it just goes to show how it, it does take a village and um, how we want to help that community. So our nutritionist here at Disney, Shannon Livingston, um, what she did was she worked with some of the caregivers at Grace, and she asked them to send a list of different food items available locally in the community. This is a very remote community, so they don't have a lot of things they can get easily. And they sent her a list of items. And so what she did is she started making biscuit recipes, gorilla biscuit recipes. And she tried several different formulations. And it was really fun because we actually tested them out for palatability with our gorillas here. And um, our gorillas would try them and let us know, hey, is this a good recipe or eh, do we need to tweak it? Um, and from there, we were able to send these recipes to the folks up at Grace. They are able to source the ingredients locally in the local market, so therefore kind of creating a little bit of an economy there. And they make these biscuits now. And these biscuits really were needed for nutrition. These um, gorillas definitely have had... Um, early childhood issues as far as nutrition goes. Most of them were not given good nutrition um, during their time with poachers, which was extended for some of them. And so we've found that um, we need to provide them a little something extra other than just the things we're able to procure from the forest. So these biscuits are going to do that for those animals. And so, again, you can see that how it's full circle, helping the community, helping the caregivers take care of the animals, giving the animals the best health and nutrition possible. Rachel, be honest. Did they like the chocolate-covered ones better? <laughs> I'll be honest. I tried them. <laughs> Of course you did. Any good horse chick eats a horse horse food, so it, a gorilla woman's got to be just as crazy. Absolutely. That's funny. So um, how can people – I'm really, really interested in gorillas. I love them very much, and I would like to help. What can I do to help save the growers – is it Grayer's Gorillas? Sorry. It's Growers Gorillas. Growers Gorillas. Okay, the Growers Gorillas are the ones that you guys are uh, helping. And and what can I I do? Is it just a normal, everyday person listening to this show? Which I am, by the way. (laughs) 
So, well, since Grace is the only one, the only orphanage for Growlers Gorillas, one of the first things um, I would suggest is go to our website, gracegorillas.org. That has a ton of information about um, what's going on in the field there, as well as the animals that are at Grace. And um, it will give you some of that information about what's going on in the country. Um, a study just came out this year. And in the past 20 years, we've lost 77% of that population. Um, what most people don't realize is these animals only live in DRC. They are um, considered one of the 25 most endangered primates in the world. They are considered critically endangered. So these are all opportunities to educate yourself about what is going on with them. And then also looking at what's going on in that country. So buying sustainable items, you know, you hear about conflict-free diamonds, conflict-free minerals, recycling your cell phones. All of these are things that are going to help improve conditions in the country and therefore conditions for the animals. Absolutely. Now, I would like to introduce you to Dr. Savage because what they did is they went over and talked to the kids. So are you guys, are you engaging the kids in the DRC? Absolutely. So community education is key. You know, um, although the people did come to us, they still need to learn ways for sustainability uh, within their communities. Plus, the children really are the key. We find that if we do the education with the kids, then the kids go home and educate the parents. And so at Graves, we have actually started a community education program where the kids get to come up to Grace. They are um, taught about gorillas, and then they get to go up onto a platform and see our gorillas. And this is probably the first time any of them have ever seen a gorilla, really in any context. And we've found that it seems to be a pretty meaningful event for them. Um, because most Congolese people have never seen a gorilla. These, especially Growlers gorillas, tend to be very um, elusive. And so you hear stories sometimes from um, some of the senior people in the um, communities, but most people that are still alive in there have never even seen a gorilla. So we find that the education piece and then really, you know, getting to see a live gorilla is hugely impactful. Gosh, that's, cool. that's great. That's great. Education breeds interest. And what that does is it sets up those kids for the rest of their life. And maybe they'll be one of the people that says back, you know, further on down the road, they're in the middle of the jungle and somebody's like, let's shoot them. And they're like, no, don't shoot them. So you're, you're setting up such a, you know, a great uphill incline, I think, for, for saving the gorillas. And it's just so incredibly important. And I do want to thank you so much, Rachel, for coming on. It's gracegorillas.org. And again, this is yeah. all through Disney World. It's just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Disney's Animal Kingdom. So uh, thank you for what you do. And thanks for helping the animals. And thanks for coming on our show. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and understand, too, it's not just Disney. It's all zoos around the world who are helping support these projects. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a very big community, hopefully saving the world. Absolutely. And I'm, 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 I'm happy about it. So thank you for joining us. And we will talk to you hopefully again soon when, when you're like, there's no more gorillas getting shot. It's incredible. That we would be awesome. <laughs> I would love world. to give you a population update. <laughs> please do, Thanks so much. Please do. Thank you.
Bye-bye. And we're going to our next guest immediately. We have Dr. Joseph Soltis on here. He is a senior scientist at Disney's Animal Kingdom and leads their bioacoustic laboratory. This is some science. Dude. I know. We're this, getting we're deep today. This is fun. out right now. He's teamed up with Dr. King in the Elephants and Bees Project in 2008 to help explore elephant vocal responses to bees and other threats in the environment. So we're, we're really talking about another animal that everybody's familiar with, just like the gorillas and over in that same part of the world, and how we can preserve them as well. Do- Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. You know, I was reading about your project today. First of all, we've all seen the elephant and the mouse thing, right? I mean, we've all seen that cartoon, and who knew that elephants were were afraid of bees? I, I, that just blew my yeah. mind. <laughs> it's like, really? Yeah, it's a crazy thing. Like, I don't when they when they first sort of proposed the project, you know, when I got into it, they had already sort of discovered that elephants were afraid of bees, and I was like, how how would you even think of that idea? I, they have I tough skin, right? Don't they? I mean, when a bee stings an elephant, you wouldn't even think they would feel it. It hurts. You know, that's true. For an adult elephant, for most of their body, they have thick skin, everything's fine, but everyone's got sensitive bits on the eyes, in the ears, in the uh. nose, in the mouth, and so, and little babies might be a little bit more sensitive, so uh, the bees can get in there and, and hurt you. Ah, got it. Okay, so explain this project. It's fascinating. Well, a good place to start might be with the sort of the problem. Um, you know, in, in at least where I work in Kenya and a lot of places in East Africa, the, the, the elephants roam free. They're not fenced in the, in the parks, and so they sort of move in and out of the reserve, and that means they move into where people are at, especially the people that sort of um, uh, have farms, you know, right near the, the crops, I mean, right near the parks. And the, these farms, they're just, they're, you know, they're just wonderful for elephants because they're herbivores, and so it's like a big salad for them. So they naturally will go into the farms and, and crop raid, and, and it can turn out, it can turn out pretty bad because the people, you know, they're just local farmers. They're just trying to make a living. They have to protect themselves and their family. And so it can lead to human-elephant conflict, and sometimes it could even uh, lead to mortality. So we want to find ways to stop elephants from going into these farms uh, and allow the farmers to you know, raise their crops and feed their families, but in a nonviolent way. And it turns out that elephants are afraid of bees, and so the Save the Elephants group that I work with, you know, they thought, you know, since elephants are afraid of bees, maybe – just maybe we can fashion some kind of, you know, bee deterrent uh, that will keep elephants from farmers' crops, and, it, and they started building beehive fences. And they're good for, for what the crops need anyway, and that's pollination, so it's kind of a win-win-win plus honey, right? Well, it's, I guess it's a win-win-win situation because of the pollination and the honey, so the farmers become, you know, beekeepers, not amateur beekeepers, but, you know, professional beekeepers, and so they can sell the honey or consume it themselves, and so it's really a, yeah, a double whammy, so you keep the elephants out. And you get the and you make a profit from your beehive fence. It's like a living fence. Now you you're in a bio bioacoustic laboratory, of course, dealing with sound. And so, how is it? How far can an elephant hear a bee? Is that a dumb question? You know what I'm asking. That's a good question. Uh, the the bees are high pitched sounds, and they don't they don't travel as far. So they probably don't uh, recognize that there's bees there until they're pretty close, you know, maybe okay. 50 or 25 meters. I'm guessing at that a little bit, just because I know about, about sound, so, sound, so it's a little bit theoretical. We haven't tested it. But in terms of their vocalizations, the vocalizations that elephants make called rumbles, they're really low-frequency, deep sounds, and they can travel for miles. And elephants can hear each other uh, from miles away. And in fact, we discovered through our experiments that elephants produce a special rumble 
in response to bees, and it's a bee alarm call. So when other elephants hear this rumble, this special rumble, even if bees aren't around, they recognize it. Oh, there must be bees around here, and they run away and shake their heads to get bees off, even though there's no bees present. Oh, wow. <laughs> Who knew? It's like their own little Facebook. Uh, bees, it, bug out. <laughs> it, ab- abso- it absolutely is. It's like, warning, bees, there's bees around here. And we, you know, we thought, that's pretty cool. And so we thought, I wonder if they have sort of a vocabulary. Yeah, now, they have a word for bees, perhaps. So we played them human voices from a local tribe, and it turns out they have a different rumble, a different word, if you will, uh, for humans. So they can say both bees, beware, and humans, beware. So, wow. So, so do they, did, were you able to determine how many words or you know, signals that they can give? So far, we just have those two. Okay. But there's other threats that, that, that uh, elephants face. One would be lions. So right. uh, we're, when we get a chance, we're kind of busy, but when we get a chance, uh, we'd like to do the same experiments with lions to see if they have a third alarm call. Oh, that's so cool. And Gosh, of course- that is just incredible. <laughs> My mind is blown. <laughs> that's really neat. Now, is it working? So there's the bottom line, right? Is the, is the Elephants and Bees Project working? It, are the crops being preserved? And is there less conflict in the places that they're doing that? Yeah, that's the thing. We did our experiments. You know, they ran away from bees. They produced an alarm call to maybe even scare other elephants away. But boy, the proof is when we put the beehive fences up. And, you know, I was, you know, I was a little skeptical whether it would totally work because, you know, there's food in there and maybe they'll just bash through the beehive fence. And, uh, but you know what? They didn't. In, in the latest study, which is three years long, uh, by Savo National Park, Lucy King uh, had the farmers and, and other interns and people sort of and camp, using camera traps. And they just sort of, you know, looked at the whole environment around these farms and they could see or learn whenever elephants came in. And out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times that elephants came in nearby these farms, uh, 80% of the time they were deterred from entering farms and only 20% of the time did they break through the fence. Wow. So that's a pretty good. I was hoping for 50-50, but we got 80%. And probably those 20% they're being run. They're running from something and, and nothing's going to stop them at that point. Um, yeah, or the fence was damaged or something. And they went around, but we still counted it as getting through. It, it was really a minority of cases uh, uh, that they that they uh, got through the fence. They would usually move along and go to a farm that was unprotected. One other question before we we have to leave here. We got we have so many guests today. I wish I could talk to you all for longer. So, what exactly do you do in the bioacoustic laboratory? I'm fascinated by that for some reason. Well, it all started uh, when I first got here. Was was uh, working with our elephants here, the herd that we have here at Disney's Animal Kingdom, and we and we put these collars around the elephants' necks that they wear voluntarily, and we had all kinds of gadgets in them, GPS and a microphone that recorded their vocalizations. And so we, the way it worked is we learned a lot about elephant vocal communication here, where it's easy to study them, easier than in the wild. Learned a lot about what they were doing, and then I met Ian Douglas Hamilton. Who was um, who's the founder of Save the Elephants? He came here for a visit where he got a conservation award because he really is a conservation hero, and uh, we started talking. So when they when their research moved to a bioacoustic side and they wanted to determine if elephants had a, had alarm calls, Lucy King sent me an email and invited me to go to Kenya. That was a number of years ago, and I've been going ever since. Well, that's cool. And Lucy, let's give her let's give her some love. She, I read a couple articles on her today and was just fascinated. Talk about a selfless human being. She really is kind of on the forefront over there. She really is awesome. This is you know Disney is just a partner. 
uh, a, a key partner, but a partner in that. Lucy King, she did this whole thing as part of her PhD for Oxford. I've been working her, working with her since then, and boy, she's grown the Elephants and Bees project to like a project of its own. It's still under the umbrella of Save the Elephants, but uh, yeah, she is just awesome. So if you, anyone who's listening, just uh, Google elephants and bees. We're the only people in the whole wide world that use those two words in the same sentence. So you'll easily find her website. <laughs> that is true. I Googled it today and it came right up to the top. It's elephantsandbees.com. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Soltis. We really appreciate you joining us. And of course, you know, elephants, we all know the, the, the other problems they have with the poaching and everything going on over there. And we're hoping that there's a thousand more projects like this ho- helping save the elephants in uh, all over the world, for that matter, not just in Africa. There are. We'll continue to work on it. All right, good. Thank you, Dr. Soltis, for the work you do. Thank you. Well, we're going to take a break for a commercial right now. Do you feel now. like you're not doing enough to change the world? I know. All I'm awesome kind of people. feeling like a schmuck right now, to be honest. Uh, we, <laughs> hey, we talk on the radio. Uh, we have a good time every morning. And I'm feeling like a lazy schmuck, to be honest with you at this point. No, save the world, Glenn. Do something more. Well, we are. And that's why we're doing this program today. We're helping get the word out about all these terrific projects and uh, all, all the work that Disney World's doing that people may not be familiar with. But you know what? Ovation sells terrific products, so let's hear from them. There's what they're, that companies like them are what makes our show possible. And we're coming back. We're going to be talking more. We're going to be talking about butterflies yet to come. We're also going to be talking about sea turtles, and we also are going to be talking about Matthew. It's a new animal, a very big one, that's heading for Florida right now. She swallowed hard as they walked into the start box. She could feel his muscles tense under her leg. Five. Four, three, two, one. Have a great ride. She didn't have to ask. He galloped out of the box and across the field toward their first training level course. His ears pricked. Her heart pounded. He attacked each obstacle with confidence, clearing them with room to spare. A huge smile broke out on her face as she crossed through the finish flags. She leaned forward and buried her face in his neck. Their bond of love and trust blocked out all else. This love story is brought to you by Elevate. Research proven to have superior bioavailability, Elevate supplies the essential vitamin E often missing from the equine diet. Its all-natural formula supports healthy muscle and nerve functions. The horse that matters to you matters to Kentucky Performance Products. Call 859-873-2974 or visit kppusa.com to order today. Total Saddle Fit, the shoulder relief girth that Reese and Philip both love. And here's why. The Saddle Fit solution you have been waiting for is finally here. TotalSaddleFit.com is proud to introduce the shoulder relief girth. This strategically shaped girth actually moves the girth line of your saddle back over one inch, thereby freeing your horse's shoulders from the saddle. Traditional girths pull saddles up against a horse's shoulders and often over the top of the shoulders. The shoulder relief girth's recessed ends allow for the billets to buckle into the girth farther back to give your horse unparalleled freedom of motion. We are so certain that your saddle will fit better and your horse will be more comfortable that for a limited time we are offering a 30-day, 110% money-back guarantee. If you are not totally satisfied with your shoulder relief girth, send it back for a full refund plus 10% of the purchase price. Don't wait. 
Order now for the best saddle fit solution available. At totalsaddlefit.com. Visit totalsaddlefit.com. We are Horses in the Morning. Jamie Jennings here. Uh, Coach Jen is in the producer chair, and I am Glenn the Geek, and we're bringing you the second annual uh, Disney World episode here on Horses in the Morning. Last year, we did it on all of the horses over there at Disney World, and that was a lot of fun. And this year, we're talking about the conservation efforts for different animals from around the world, because all horse people are animal people. And we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have horses unless we were true animal people. And that's why we thought that this would be a good project for today. We want to wish our best and we're, our thoughts and prayers. We live in o- Ocala. We don't have the problem quite as bad. Uh, we will get the hurricane, uh, but we have hosts and we have a lot of listeners and fellow horse people that are along the coast in Florida that are evacuating in Georgia and the Carolinas. I saw a lot of our listeners and auditors have already taken their horses and gotten out or, and are going back for more horses. Apparently there are traffic jams on 95 and 75 and one person said that they were heading back to get more horses and they saw a steady stream stream of horse trailers heading from the coast inland. So we hope that uh, you all are safe and that if you do, do live along the coast that you heed the warnings. I was heartened this morning to see the Facebook posts of everybody that is getting out with their animals and that have an evacuation plan. Uh, so we wish you all the best. I, I know that Emily was on here from the jumping show yesterday and she lives in Wellington. She's working on her plans right now with her 15 horses because Wellington is basically built in the Everglades and they just filled it in. Uh, if they get a lot of rain, they're going to have a problem there as well. So mm-hmm. everybody down there is working on it too. So we wish them all the best. Our thoughts and prayers are with you. And if we're not here on Friday, it means we lost our power again like we did in the last hurricane that went through a month ago. So just wanted to warn you of that as well. Uh, our next guest coming up here to continue with our Animal Kingdom show is Dr. Zach Gazan. He is a conservation program manager for the Disney for Disney working to create butterfly habitats around the world and engage kids and families with nature. In collaboration with the University of Florida, he is making strides to help save butterflies of Florida and California through habitat creation, population monitoring, breeding efforts, and education programs. And I got to tell you, Zach, Jennifer and I live in Ocala, and twice a year we go to the University of Florida in Gainesville, and we see the best butterfly habitat in the world. It is so much fun. We go just for that. It's phenomenal, isn't it? Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. It is. It's phenomenal. It is the coolest place, Jamie. When you come to visit us in Ocala next time, we're going to this butterfly habitat because it is so cool. It is the best one out Yeah, they've there. got dozens of species flying around, tons of them. You can see them feeding stuff. They've got really cool ones. They've got ones from all over the world. They've got ones from Asia, uh, massive swallowtails that will come down and drink, you know, banana juice and the blue morphos and the owl butterflies from the neotropics. They've got a whole bunch of species that are from right here in Florida. That is a phenomenal place to go see butterflies and learn about them. Now, I did seem like I was wearing a color. I think it was blue that day, and I had more butterflies landing on me than anybody else. Is it color-driven that they're attracted to, or is it just that I stink the right way? I wasn't sure. You can... It might be a combination of both. So butterflies have a great (laughs) sense of smell, and they taste with their feet. And so if you're really sweaty, 
Sometimes butterflies will come and land on you and start lapping up your sweat because they like the salts. Um, they're certainly attracted to some perfumes. And uh, a lot of those butterflies, they really like colors. Uh, so, you know, like those giant blue morpho butterflies, just like the giant, beautiful butterflies of the neotropics. If you're wearing like a bright blue parka or something like that, those guys will be all over you. And it's mostly the males that chase the females. So if you were in a bright blue parka and you're walking through one of those butterfly gardens, expect uh, male blue morpho butterflies just to be dive bombing you. And that's what, what, that's what I was getting, actually. I didn't know they were. Yeah. I didn't know they thought I was hot, though. That's a whole new story. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You're you kind of thrown for a loop. But that's right. <laughs> You've never been wanted more, Glenn. Okay? I know. They wanted to breed with you. That never happened in high school, <laughs> yeah. by the way. I just yeah. Saying. If you really want to bump it up a notch, so, so those butterflies are attracted to fermenting fruit. And so if you go into a butterfly garden, like where they have blue morpho butterflies with a glass of wine or something like that, they will absolutely go, be going nuts for you. And in fact, they'll fly right down and land inside of your glass. So when I go there the next time, I can tell the guards at the gate that you told me to bring the wine. No, no, no. Heavy spit, no way. You got to be very careful. You got to have one of those like German uh, beer steins that covers up the top. Otherwise, they'll be waiting right inside I need a flask. So, so tell me, what, why are butterflies so important? Let's start there. So butterflies are, there's two big things with butterflies, and it's such a great combination. So for one thing, they're just absolutely beautiful. They're such a good introduction to insects and other animals. So, you know, insects make up like 80% of species on the planet, but, you know, sometimes they're kind of creepy and gross and they bite and they sting. And, you know, they're not, they're not seen as, you know, if you go to wildlife uh, sanctuaries, if you go to Yellowstone or whatever, and you want to see the wildlife, people don't typically think of as insects as being part of you know, that suite of species, but they absolutely are. In fact, they make up the bulk of biodiversity, but you know, people don't like them that much. And butterflies are a very approachable insect. And so they're a phenomenal ambassador for biodiversity at large. And they're a really good way to get kids and families in nature and experiencing nature and appreciating the, you know, the bulk of the species out there. And the other thing is, as they're very, very important to supporting ecosystems through pollination. So butterflies like to drink nectar, as they go to uh, uh, flowering plants and they stand on top of the flower and they're drinking the nectar, pollen will get stuck to their body. And then as they go to the next uh, pit stop and they get more nectar, some of that pollen will accidentally uh, get transferred onto another plant. And that's the way that plants um, reproduce. Like 90% of flowering plants require bees and butterflies and other insects to transport the pollen around for them to help in their, their reproduction. So butterflies and other pollinators are just simply critical to ecosystems as we know it. So butterflies are just this phenomenal combination of being beautiful, approachable, recognizable, and really, really important for biodiversity. They have one big negative, though, Jamie, and that's their lifespan is about, what, 14 days? Yeah, I mean, that, that seems short from our point of view, but hold on, you gotta, you got to realize that's only 14 days as an adult butterfly, right? And there's a whole crazy story that's happening before that, right? So they start off as an egg that's laid on a particular species of plant, and each species of butterfly, so like Florida has almost 200 species of butterflies, right? Every single one of those species of butterflies can usually only lay their eggs on just like one or two or a few species of plant, right? And that's one of the reasons... Oh, so the they're picky so about their, their breeding habitat then. They're super picky and kind of like we are, you know, like if you walk out into the forest, if you go out into, you know, ride your horse out into the forest of Ocala and you're looking around, how many species of plants looking around do you think you're going to be able to eat? Yeah, very few. Like none. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, there's, there's very, very few. We're picking Now, our horses are going to try you know. and eat them all, which is bad. But uh, Right. Yeah, well, if they can stomach it, you know, more power <laughs> to them. But butterflies are more like people in that we're very, very picky eaters. So um, for all of those species of butterflies, you know, they only have a particular host plant, but you get that um, 
uh, you have that egg laid on there, and there'll be an egg for, you know, five to ten days. That hatches out as this tiny, tiny little caterpillar, just an itsy-bitsy little thing that'll grow and grow to eat its own body weight every day for like a month, just getting more and more massive. They, they grow so fast, it would be like me deciding I wanted to eat Rice Krispie Trees today and grow my own body weight every single day, and after a month or so, I'd be like bigger than a blue whale. It's just explosive growth. It's just bonkers. <laughs> and then they turn into the chrysalis, and they sit like that for a couple of weeks while they rearrange themselves into a totally different animal, and then they emerge as a butterfly, and as you say, they, they fly around for about 14 days. But man, there's, their, their overall lifespan is way longer than that. And is it true that the cast members are helping you out at Disney World? Yeah, so one of the one of my uh, primary goals here is I want to make uh, Walt Disney World as butterfly friendly as possible. So we we're doing uh, are doing our part to make sure we have lots of plants around to support habitat. In some parts of the state, you know, there there are species of butterflies that are really in decline, and we're breeding butterflies and doing habitat restoration and releasing those butterflies into the habitat. And uh, and at Disney World, particularly here at Animal Kingdom, we have so many passionate people that really want to be involved with the conservation efforts. But you know, it's tough. You know, we all want to, but it's, it's tough to find the time and day to go out and do it. So one as as part of one of the projects that we're doing, where we're doing habitat restoration and breeding species for release. We're uh, in the process of developing a program where cast members can help us raise the insects right in their work area, and then those will be transported out and released, uh, be released by kids back into a restored habitat. So it's a really cool way to get the cast involved, directly involved with one of our broader conservation efforts. It's awesome. It's I so want cool. a butterfly terrarium in my studio. Uh, that'd you be can cool. do it. You that'd can do cool. it. That'd yeah, be cool. absolutely. You know? Yeah, sure. I know. My... You know, if you plant milkweed, you will get so so. You know, go to a native nursery, see if you can find some native milkweeds, and if you plant it, they will come. You will get monarch butterflies laying eggs on it. And if you want to take those caterpillars indoors and uh, raise them up and see them turn into butterflies, you can do it. I know my brother actually lives right near us here in Ocala. He um, he actually has a butterfly garden, and they planted all the plants that butterflies like. And he has. You'll go out there. There'll be a hundred but- butterflies in front of his house at any given time. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's the nice thing. I mean, the reason that plants have flowers is not, you know, for us. We happen to think they're pretty, too, but it, it's specifically for the, the bees and the butterflies. So if you take a beautiful, beautiful butterfly garden or beautiful garden that you like and just tweak it just ever so slightly, plant like big clumps of plants because um, they're a little bit nearsighted, so having big, you know, um, patches of color, um, have plants that bloom early in the year and late in the year and things that are short and tall and um, you know, have all sorts of different colors. Don't uh, don't shy away from white flowers and pastels, things like that. Um, uh, reds, blues, yellows. You will get lots of uh, butterflies and 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 native bees, and uh, it'll be beautiful when there are no butterflies, and it'll be even more beautiful when there are butterflies. Now, are you located at at Animal Kingdom? Is that where your 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 offices are? Yes, sir. We're lucky enough to be right here, uh, smack dab in the middle of Animal Kingdom. It's awesome. Now, I'm getting a lot of questions. Um, I'm getting a lot of questions from from listeners right now about, and, and we're waiting for our next guest. I think she's going to be calling in here shortly, uh, Rachel Smith, unless you're handing off to her. Um, I can I can hand it right off to her. That's okay. All right. Well, then I'll ask you this question before you do. So now we're getting lots of questions about the hurricane coming up and about the animal. Mm-hmm. Everybody's worried about the animals at Animal Kingdom. I am assuming sure. that Disney has a a hurricane preparedness plan for the animals at Animal Kingdom that's about the size of the Bible. Am I right about that? No, this is not my area of expertise. I have to tell you, I really focus on okay. the butterflies. I, I didn't know if it was that, all hands um, on deck for uh, hurricane time. I have a question for Dr. Gazan. Um, 
if you have a second, uh, I'm sorry, sure, I dropped off. But so let I... me just say really, really quick that Disney is phenomenally good at being prepared. I figured. And they absolutely have experts <laughs> that are, are looking after the animal welfare. So yeah. I, I just wanted to say that although my focus is on the butterflies, believe me, Disney's on top of it. Yeah, and you know what? The barns there are made out of concrete block that isn't going anyplace. So, <laughs> so Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So my my question was kind of funny. Uh, I I I listened to you and you're a doctor and you're talking so passionately about butterflies. If you're like you know at a bar and somebody walks up to you and goes, "Can I buy you a drink?" and you're like, "Yeah, what do you do?" You're like, "I'm a doctor." Are they like, <laughs> and you're like, "Well, you got yeah, you got, yeah." They're like, "What kind of doctor are you?" You're like, "I'm a doctor of butterflies." Like, how does that work? Yeah, baby, absolutely. So, there's not, so I don't know if you know this, but the uh, the world's biggest entomology conference was just here in Orlando, and there is nothing more nerdy and enthusiastic and beautiful than a group of entomologists. I bet. Together. It is the most incredible, just dork fest you can. Um, oh, like, do imagine. they wear it, shirts awesome. covered in butterflies? Just tell me they do, please. Of course, of course they do. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Absolutely they do. Oh, God. I would yeah, love in fact, I bought two shirts for my daughter that are covered in insects. You know? <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, no, we're all about it. That's no, I proudly, I proudly say, I proudly say that I am a doctor of butterflies and bees <laughs> and all sorts of things. That is so awesome. I'll tell you I'm what, like, though, you're going to learn that Zach is cool, really cool doctor of butterflies. If you go to his website, <laughs> you're going to see him in the Arctic and all over the world. He's quite an adventurer too. You would think a doctor of butterflies would just be smoking a pipe and wearing a sweater, but that's not true. If you go to his website, you're going to see a whole different guy. I was very impressed. So uh, <laughs> thank you. Hot. Too, of course, so that helps. <laughs> Dr. Gazan, thank you hey, so much they're, for, they're, uh, for absolutely. Yeah, for, thank for you so much. Us. And you got Rachel on coming on next, right? Rachel Smith? She is right here. Let me pass. Okay, uh, let good. me pass the phone to her. I want to know here. what you were about to say. I'm curious. Thank you so much. <laughs> he was about to say something. <laughs> Cut him off. Hi, this is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. How are you today? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, I mean, Glenn was just talking to, to Dr. Gazan about the hurricane coming. You are doing a lot of work as where you're, you specialize on Vero Beach. Is Are you guys, are they going to be okay? Are they going to be okay? Yes. Well, let me, let me back up and say for just a second for those who aren't sort of familiar of how turtly Florida is. Um, we're in one of the hotspots for nesting activity for sea turtles in the entire world. And 90% of all the sea turtle nesting in the U.S. happens in Florida. So as you can imagine, we have hundreds of thousands of nests sometimes in a given year. Disney monitors a stretch of beach along Vero Beach that spans about five miles. And we had 1,280 nests this year. So that's an average of about 250 nests per mile. Most of them luckily have hatched by the time this hurricane is headed our way, which is great. We only have a handful of nests left on the beach. Um, but we have been down there getting the whole entire beach prepared um, for hurricane impacts. You know, as you know, we're on a hurricane watch down on the um, southeastern coast of Florida. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we only have a few nests. We are expecting some erosion, but I always like to say that the, uh, the turtles have been withstanding hurricanes for the last several million years, and they're very um, they're very resilient to, to storms such as this one. And so we are expecting not to have huge impacts to the sea turtle populations here as a result of this hurricane. Well, the sea turtles are such a big part of the beaches in Florida. I, I have to tell you, I got married in St. Augustine. 
Up. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> I I think did we lose Jamie? Oh, I think we lost. She might ja- have disappeared. I think we lost Jamie. I'll try and get her back, but she did. She got married in St. Augustine on the beach. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, and I do know that you guys. Uh, I do, I know that all of Florida Florida is aware of the importance of the sea turtles because even when you go to Daytona Beach and places like that, they. Um, they really work hard to protect. Is that something that, that you work on as well? Is it just Vero Beach, or are you guys concerned about the turtle populations? And how are the turtle populations? Okay, well, that, several questions there. Let, yeah. me try to, let me try to tackle each one. Um, first of all, yes, it's true that our on-the-ground conservation work here um, with our Disney biologists happens in Vero Beach, but that's not to say that we don't have impacts with sea turtle populations around the state and around the world. Uh, the Disney Conservation Fund has, at this point, funded over $2 million worth of um, worth of funding for sea turtle conservation projects around the world. And um, so we're very dedicated to the fact that we have global populations of sea turtles. All seven species right now are endangered, including the three species that are nesting along Florida's beaches. Um, so while we have our direct conservation work in Vero, we are very mindful of the fact that there are sea, turtle, sea turtles nesting all over the place and that they all need protection. Um, regarding what we do on our beach, um, we, as I mentioned before, we have a five-mile stretch of beach that our biologists go out and monitor daily during the nesting season. Um, so we're marking every new nest, we're monitoring it until it hatches, and then we are doing a nest inventory at the end. We're rescuing any hatchlings that need assistance out of the nest at the very end, um, and we're also collecting important data on reproductive success. So there's a lot of things going on on our beach, and we try to get creative with our conservation efforts. Um, one of the most important things I think that we did this year is train a sniffer dog to actually help us locate those freshly laid sea turtle nests. Oh, that's cool. Okay. And this, is there anything cool. dogs can't sniff out? Yeah, dogs are busy. I'm, I'm beginning to think that dogs are invincible, <laughs> and they are our best friends not only in our in our homes, but also in terms of conservation, because I'll tell you, great things come in small packages, and this little guy, he's a pocket beagle. His name is Captain Ron. He's only three years old, but he is full of potential, both with uh, detecting sea turtle nests and with being just an absolutely great ambassador for sea turtle conservation, and we've been so thrilled with his progress this year. Yeah, that's incredible. So with his, I mean, beagles are obviously, I think, the most sensitive of all the the sniffing dogs. What is he? What is he sniffing? I mean, how? What is the difference between just finding a regular egg and a sniffing out a, a sea turtle egg? That's a great question. And we, at at the very beginning of this project, we were trying to figure out how we were going to tackle this problem with training. And what we determined is that he could pick up the scent of the thin mucus coating that surrounds the surrounds the outside of the turtle egg as it's dropping into the ground um, as the mother sea turtle is laying those eggs. And so we were able to go out and do some sampling and collect um, mucus samples that were actually surrounding the turtle eggs, and he was trained on that scent. And that keeps him from not locating every single old nest on the beach from previous years that are, that are you know, decomposing and... Um, providing nutrients to the dune sand, but we're only targeting those freshly laid sea turtle nests that we need to stake off for protection and monitor for for that season. So he's okay. been at almost 100% accuracy this year. So Captain Ron, a three-year-old beagle, can sniff out a layer of mucus that are on yes. eggs that are buried <laughs> in the sand. 
It's phenomenal. And some of these, some of these nests are two or three feet, sometimes four feet down (laughs) in the sand. And we used to spend about 45 minutes finding some of these very difficult to find nests under the sand so that we could put protective stakes around them. He goes out on the beach as if he's just trying to show off and he finds it in about 10 (laughs) seconds. (laughs) And then he sits there and watches us do all the rest of the work marking the nest. It's pretty phenomenal. Has that helped? So when you mark the nest, that's basically stay away from this spot, right? I mean, that's what we're trying to accomplish is keep humans away from that spot. Has it helped? I mean, are, are, are humans being respectful is my question. Yes, and I think the answer to that is a resounding yes. I mean, we yeah, we have a, we've been talking about so much negative human stuff today with all the other animals yeah. that it's good to have a victory I know. here. It's, it's really great to see how a dog can contribute to conservation in this really creative way, um, and we're just so excited at the results because, as you were mentioning, it's you know it's it's a federal offense to tamper with sea turtle nests on beaches in Florida. Um, and so the more that we can put those protective stakes around that we find, the better, and the more it keeps them safe on our beaches. And this dog is helping us to do that. So I think it's a true success story and a happy ending story for us. Do the turtles themselves, which get pretty big, right? I mean, what do, what do they end up weighing as a full-grown grandpa? <laughs> First of all, we, we mostly only have the females coming up and, okay. and visiting us on the beach. Um, but yes, they get, they get extremely oh. large. You're right. And we have three main species that are consistently nesting on our beaches. We have the loggerhead sea turtle, uh, the green turtle, which is the one of Finding Nemo fame, if everybody remembers Crush and Squirt from our Finding Nemo yeah. film. Um, and we also have the leatherback sea turtle, and they are sort of living dinosaurs, and they can reach they can reach sizes of up to 2,000 pounds. Whoa! That's one big turtle. Yeah. <laughs> that's the size it is of a, a very large turtle. <laughs> that's the size of those. That's the weight of those draft horses pulling uh, the trolley down Main Street. That's <laughs> yes, exactly. And wild. and when you see their tracks on the beach, they you know they leave us those very conspicuous tracks, and that's how we even know to search the sand for nests in the morning. But when the leatherback leaves those tracks on the beach for us, it looks like a car drove out of the ocean. It's really amazing. <laughs> Unbelievable! Wow. That's just incredible. That's, so now we so. What are their predators? What predators does it? I understand what predators the eggs have, okay? But what predators do the full-grown sea turtles have? Sharks? Uh, or are they just too crunchy? People. Yeah, so the, the adult sea turtles are rather large. Even even the smallest species on our beach ends up around 250 or 300 pounds as an adult. Um, so they're they're pretty formidable against most predators in the ocean. Sharks will... Sharks, tiger sharks in particular, will sometimes attack adult turtles, but for the most part, really, their only threat at that size are humans. Hmm. And that's not to say that the little hatchlings don't have a, a myriad of threats as they are leaving our beaches and heading out to the open ocean, but the adults are fairly safe except for impacts from humans. I got to tell you, Rachel, the most bizarre experience we ever had with large turtles was we were putting on a horse show. This was in Massachusetts. It was early in the morning. We were getting the sand arena ready for the horse show to start at like 9 o'clock. We could not start that horse show to almost 11 because about 20 huge snapping turtles had come into the sand to lay their eggs. And they were not being encouraged to move. So we just sat and waited for them to leave. It was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. But pretty cool, right? Yeah, it was cool. I mean, it was cool, but it was just bizarre to watch because I'd never seen. And I didn't know they all like wanted to do it at the same time. It's like egg egg laying time. We're going over here. And an email went out and they all showed up. 
It was just yeah. It's it's pretty phenomenal that even even those aquatic turtles that we have will sort of head out of their pond areas to lay eggs on land, and so it's the same same concept as our sea turtles coming out of the ocean to lay eggs on our nesting beaches. But I think it's a really cool thing to watch. But who knew it was a group activity? I mean, <laughs> it's like uh, yeah. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. <laughs> on on our beaches, it's not necessarily a group activity for our species, but there are species of sea turtles, namely. Um, the Kemp's Ridley turtle that will nest in what they call aribadas. And so they're big, giant formations, and all the turtles in the thousands come out of the ocean at one time onto one nesting beach and lay their eggs. And it's, it is one of the great things in nature to be able to witness. It's That's really cool. Really, really neat. So um, how can people get involved and help? Uh, obviously, besides um, ordering turtle off a menu, uh, what can people do to help? Well, first of all, I'd like to just encourage anybody in the area, even if you're not in our area, to come visit us at Disney Zero Beach Resort. This is home base for us, where um, the Disney's Animal Science and Environment team, our whole team of sea turtle experts, are down there um, from April through October. And we offer daily encounters where you can come on the beach and watch us um, look at sea turtle tracks, inventory sea turtle nests. We have hatchling releases. We have guided sea turtle night walks in June and July, where if you come stay at the resort, you can embark on this great adventure at night to see a sea turtle lay eggs up close and personal um, under the supervision of trained guides. And so it's a really phenomenal way to connect with nature um, and to inspire people to take action. And in terms of action, I think the main things that we encourage people to do that people can do anywhere that they live um, is to keep litter and plastics out of the environment. As you know, all waterways lead to the ocean. You don't have to be living on the coast in order to help a sea turtle because any plastic that gets into a canal or waterway will end up in the ocean where it could harm a sea turtle. Those big leatherbacks that I told you about earlier their, their sole diet is jellyfish, and so if they see a plastic bag floating around in the ocean, they will assume it's a jellyfish and it will make them very sick. So aside from donating, um, one of the main things we can do to help is just really avoid single-use plastics and keep all of that stuff out of the environment for sea turtles. I like sea turtles even more. They eat jellyfish. That's perfect. That's... See, yeah, everybody should love and support turtles. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's right, because none of us really like jellyfish all that much when we're swimming in the ocean. So, <laughs> although they do have their importance in the ecosystem too. Yeah, as long as they stay but away from go. the beach, I'm happy that they have importance <laughs> in the ocean. No, this has been great. Thank you so much. I have to ask you a question. It's a question we asked earlier. And uh, so, did, what did you tell people when growing up that you wanted to be? Oh, that's a great question. So I have been a bio nerd ever since I was born. My Both of my parents are biologists, so I think it was inevitable that I ended up um, on this career trajectory. But I was always a shark person um, growing up, and still now I'm, I'm helping to manage the shark work here at Disney as well as the turtle work. And so I've always sort of been into the animals that most people didn't find as fun, like the sharks and all the creepy crawlies that, that we call you know, herps, reptiles, and amphibians. And so those are the animals I've always focused on. Um, And I'm just so happy that Disney embraces those animals in the same way that they embrace all the other animals here. And we're allowed to, we're allowed to have these amazing conservation programs that, that help all of, all of Earth's creatures, not just the cuddly ones. You got like your ultimate dream job and you're like 22. I mean, you did. You got your. <laughs> I wish I was twenty-two, but yeah. <laughs> you got your. You, you sound like you're twenty-two, but you got your ultimate dream job and ended up doing it at Disney World. How cool is that? That's pretty cool. 
It is the coolest. I I'm so thankful every single day. I bet turtles and sharks and all and Disney. I mean, who could ask for anything more? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to cool and live in Florida, so that's not too bad either. So there you go. Well, be safe down there at Vero Beach. We know that Disney will be battening down the hatches, and that uh, uh, they have some very strong buildings built down there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Rachel. We really appreciate it, and uh, thank you to everybody that joined us today. It's been a a fun day of learning about all the different creatures around the world that are being helped by Disney World, and we hope that we have enlightened you to things that happen behind the scenes that you don't always see when you end up at Animal Kingdom. Uh, you don't see when you're riding the roller coasters, and you don't even think about uh, all the work that's being done for the good of, of the world and, and, and well, of the animals and worldwide. I think that's what the the most interesting part is, is that this is not, you know, the, with, even with just starting with our first guest who is involved with the islands above Guam for birds. And then you travel to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And then you move over to uh, another part of Africa where they're studying bees and elephants. And then you go to Florida and California with butterflies and then Vero Beach for turtles. It's just, um, it is so incredible to think about how Disney is just reaching around the entire world using its power for good. You know what? Another takeaway is people are terrible, but there's some really bad people out there, but there's a whole lot more good people who are trying to fix the mistakes of just a couple jerks, you know? So it's really interesting to think about the worldwide reach that Disney is having. And that all goes back to Walt, as we learned on last year's show. Walt was a huge animal guy. Walt had horses. He showed, God. you know, he showed, he, he loved animals. And this is something that was, and of course, look at the movies, right? I mean, obviously he was a huge animal guy. So well, you think of a big corporation making all the money that Disney must make. I mean, gosh. And you know, they're giving $40 million in annual grants since night, since they started the Disney conservation fund. So like I said, that's using your power for good. Well, we appreciate everybody that came on today. Thank you so much to Robin, who is the zoologist over at the horse side over at Fort Wilderness. And, uh, you know, we we also really, really appreciate Stephanie Shook, who is, uh, it, her title is Disney Animal Science and Environment Engagement and Communication. There's another cool job, too. You get to talk about all the animals and uh, promote them. And, and Stephanie, you did a great job. Thank you so much for putting this together for us. And we hope that we get to do it in person next year. We'll make our way over to Animal Kingdom and we'll do it in person next year. That'll be a lot of fun too. We hope you enjoyed our second annual Disney. We will be back tomorrow. It is Draft Horse Day here on Horses in the Morning. And then Friday, Jamie will be back and Really Bad Ads will be back. We promise. We promise we'll have some Really Bad Ads back. Get your as ads in. As long as you don't lose internet because of a hurricane. Yeah, that little so thing called Matthew. Promising. You know, every Matthew I knew in high school was a bully too, by the way. So... Yeah, so it's just living. Matthews, I knew were weenies. So oh, it's really? Gonna be fine. <laughs> we're going to be good. Fine. Yeah. It's going to be a hurt. It's going to be a category one by the time it reaches us instead of a four. I don't even know any Matthews. <laughs> I did, and they were all bullies. So thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you again tomorrow, hopefully here at uh, Horses in the Morning. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. Hakuna Matata. You were close, I think. Papa, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Be true.